the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 21, A Town Divided. Martin awoke to someone tapping on his head. Time to get up, sleepyhead, said Robert's voice. Ugh, was all Martin could think to say. He uncoiled himself from the ball he had become through the chill of the night. His legs and arms recoiled at the cold corners of the sleeping bag. No whining, said Robert, from the world outside of the sleeping bag. We let you sleep as long as possible. We already filled our canteens and water bag from the stream down there and put the purifier tablets in. Got Jasmine saddled up for you. You're welcome, by the way. Trevor saved you some acorn coffee and corn mush. The sun'll be coming up soon. Time to get going. It took a few moments for Martin's brain to get oriented. Corn mush? Where was he? What day was it? His body could only focus on how he felt. Go where? A quick replay of the day before ran through his mind. Ah, the medicine! That island! We have to get to that island by tomorrow noon! He burst out of the sleeping bag as if he was escaping an abduction. The woods were tinged with the deep blue of the morning's twilight. He retrieved his flannel shirt and pants from the foot of the sleeping bag. I'll get the tarp and roll up your sleeping bag, said Robert. You get your boots on. Trevor said atop Diva, I got your cup of coffee and a cup of grits right here, he said. That ain't the hottest no more, but the sooner you get in the saddle, the sooner you can have them. He waved the cups toward Martin, as if coaxing a stray puppy. The corn mush had cooled to a sticky paste. Martin had to eat it by wiping a finger around the inside of the cup. The acorn coffee was closer to tepid, so it felt warm compared to the morning air. He could see his breath. Jasmine's, too. A light frost coated the long grasses beside the trail. As the sun came up behind them, the yellow light quickly melted away the thin frost. I don't know if I'm getting any tougher, said Trevor, or if my butt is just numb. Martin nodded. Actual toughness took more than one day of riding. Nonetheless, numbness was an improvement. The reduced discomfort made it easier to concentrate on watching the edge of the woods. Truth be told, there was little to watch. The power line cut traveled through a hilly expanse of thick woods. Few houses sat near the cut. The meandering trail had widened into two sandy tire ruts. Diva plodded up beside Jasmine. The two horses snorted and whinnied softly to each other. Trevor shrugged when Martin asked with his eyes why he was beside him. Recalling how Robert said that Diva was more of a social herd horse, prone to ignoring rider commands, Martin thought it better not to undermine Trevor's image of himself as a cowboy. Well, I guess if you're going to be up here, said Martin, we'd better change which side we watch. I'll watch left, you watch right. Hey, good idea, said Trevor. Yeah, but watch what? All days here's trees. Well, that's a good thing, said Martin. Still got to watch, though. Could be someone hiding in there. Martin was especially mindful of possible ambushes when the trail drifted close to one side of the cut to the other. Since a horse walks a little faster than a human, Martin took some comfort in the low odds that a hoodlum would just happen to be hanging out at the side of the edge of the power line cut, in the middle of nowhere, 
on the off chance that someone might walk by. Yet stranger things happen, so he kept a sharp eye out for movement in the shadows. All this quiet and watching trees gives a man too much time to think. I've been thinking about my soul mate, said Trevor. Martin gave Trevor a melodramatic, weary look. I know, I know, you don't believe in the soulmate stuff like Andy does. I just mean the girl what's right for me. Andy talks about some sparks or something. I never seen no sparks. I mean, did you? You and Mrs. S are pretty tight. Did you see sparks when you first met Mrs. S? Martin smiled hesitantly. That was a cue to tell some sentimental how-we-met stories. Trouble was, his mind was coming up blank. Memories of their dating life were as foggy as the history of the League of Nations or what caused the Franco-Prussian War. He didn't recall anything like Sparks when he met Margaret. Had there been Sparks, but he'd forgotten them? He could remember pleasant friendship, cordiality, and a sort of glow and comfort from companionship. Working night shifts tended to leave one socially isolated. Any friendly face was highly prized. Well, there weren't sparks like Andy talks about, Martin said at last. Uh, so you two just kind of said, uh, hey, you want to get married or something? And she says, oh, yeah, I guess I got nothing else going on. Yeah, why not? Martin forced a chuckle. Well, no, nothing quite as dry as that, he said. But then, was it? He and Margaret always said they had a mature approach to their relationship, not driven by emotion. Was mature just a word to excuse dryness? He and Margaret had an honest view of their relationship. They had enjoyed their youth together. Heck, they had two kids. But they knew that good looks and youthful physiques wouldn't last. Passions mellow. They resolved to stay committed purposefully, not simply out of habit. Long-term commitment, after youthful looks have faded, didn't make for an inspiring talk for a young man looking for sparks. A trail ride wasn't a good time for an in-depth discussion. Well, I just knew in my heart that we could have a good marriage, Martin said. In your heart, huh? I never felt nothing in my heart. In my pants, yeah, Trevor said with an embarrassed chuckle. Yeah, but no hearts. Like I said, they was all players. Oh, they talk like you done lit them up inside and how they just has to have you, you know? Yeah, but it's all a lie. Most guys knew it, too. They just played along for the candy. I'm wondering if I'll ever feel something in my heart. Martin knew he felt something in his heart for Susan, even if he wasn't sure what that something was. He avoided thinking about what exactly he felt. To dwell on such thoughts felt like opening the door to unfaithfulness. Were his feelings simply an extended and innocent version of compulsive rescue disorder? Or was it something else? Life in the new normal of the grid-down world was too busy to permit any deep musings over it. His ride along the power lines was quiet and monotonous enough that it was hard not to think about it. It was clear that Susan had stirred up feelings he hadn't expected he would ever have to deal with. This is it, guys, said Robert. He stopped Peaches and turned in his saddle. The cut goes southwest from here. But the map says it crosses some pretty extensive swamps and a small lake. This is where we go back into the brush again. They dismounted to put their eye protection on their horses. Martin studied the map. Well, we go along the base of these two hills and then down this one back road? Yep, until we connect with this abandoned rail bed. 
Odds are, it's been turned into a hiking trail or a bike path. That happens a lot. Should be smoother going. We'll give up the railroad bed just before we pass this narrow neck between these two lakes. Then, a bit more bushwhacking and fence rows until we connect up with this other cut on the other side of Jaffrey. We should be able to avoid the town. Trekking through the woods allowed no time for conversation or free time for a mind to wander about things. There were always branches to be fended off, some with more success than others. The old railroad bed was more relaxed going. After decades of abandonment, the forest was in the process of absorbing the stripe of open space. The ground was smooth, if weedy, so the horses walked at a more confident pace. Up on the left, whispered Robert. We cut over to a highway bridge to cross the river between the lakes. Martin could hear the apprehension in Robert's tone. He felt it, too. They were halfway between the two towns, Ringe to the south, Jaffrey to the north. Martin expected to have seen some of the locals working in fields or hauling burdens to some place. They saw locals engaged in business as they skirted around Milford. Ever since they left their camp at dawn, he had seen no one. Robert gestured the left turn to Trevor, who nodded silently. He must have sensed the noticeable absence as well. Robert pulled his rifle from his saddle scabbard and held it low across his leg. Martin followed suit. The three riders approached the bridge with caution. The bridge was clear. No barricades. There was no one in sight. Robert spurred Peaches into a fast trot once they reached the pavement. Martin and Trevor matched the pace. The bridge was less than thirty yards long. In a flash of a moment, a man rose up on the left side and threw a rope across the road. Another man rose up from the weeds, grabbed the line, and pulled it tight at shoulder level. Pairs of men climbed the embankment on both sides of the road, long guns plainly visible. Robert pulled Peaches up to a skidding stop. Jasmine and Diva nearly collided with Peaches. Martin turned Jasmine to race back the way they came, but six more men swarmed the road at the south end of the bridge. The three horses swirled around each other in confusion. Robert, Martin, and Trevor had their weapons shouldered, but with their horses in motion it was impossible to stay sighted on any one of the men for more than a moment. Twelve to three. Not good odds, thought Martin. The three of them might be able to take out a few, maybe as many as half, but the other half would ultimately win. Put your guns down shouted a man from the north end of the bridge. It's no use trying anything stupid. You'll never get off this bridge alive if you do. We're not here to make trouble, shouted Martin, just passing through to somewhere else. Don't matter. You're in our territory. So we call the shots. Put them down. Yeah, they've got us outgunned, Robert whispered out of the side of his mouth. Well, we ought to be able to reason our way out of this, said Martin. Well, let's not act like criminals or raiders. Martin knew he still had a mission to accomplish. He couldn't help Margaret if he were shot dead. He felt that it had to all be a misunderstanding born of an overabundance of caution. He would explain their humanitarian goal. The bridge men would see that they were no threat and let them go. Robert, Martin, and Trevor lowered their weapons. The men walked cautiously onto the bridge, their rifles held high with sights on the three riders. The bridge men pulled down their guns. Now, get down, really slowly, 
shouted the apparent leader of the bridge bend. Martin dismounted in slow motion. He held his hands out. One man patted him down while another held his sights on Martin's head. Well, look, we're, we're not trying to trespass on anyone's territory. We're just trying to get to Keene, Martin said toward the leader. Keene was specific enough for plausibility, but not too specific. We're not here to make trouble for you. The man patted him down and found his pistol and hunting knife. He even found the little folding knife Martin kept in his boot. Another man rummaged through the packs of their horses. He pulled out the plastic water bag, unscrewed the cap, and sniffed. Phew! That's something sketchy, that is. Sketchy? protested Robert. That's just stream water. We use purifier tablets in it. Well, maybe that's what you smell. The leader, a lanky, balding man in his late forties, sniffed the water bag and then looked away with a sour face. Ew, that don't smell like water. I bet that's hooch. You boys are trying to smuggle hooch into our town. Well, it's not hooch, Martin said. It's a rifle stock smacked the back of his head. Same in these canteens, too, said another bridge man. Well, dump them all out, said the leader. There'll be no hooch corrupt in our town. Hey, looky, said another bridge man. He had discovered the ammo boxes on Jasmine's flanks. These are full of silver coins. Ah, so you've been selling your hooch around here, eh? Black market's illegal here. No, Martin glanced back at the man behind him, poised to deliver another blow. He was impatient with the delay. They had no time for local issues. That's payment for some medicine. We're on our way to Keene. That seemed like a plausible yet vague enough destination and not totally inaccurate. We're on our way to... Martin fell to the pavement. You're on your way to see Chairwoman Acker, said the leader. That's where you're going. Now get up. Thompson, tie their hands. You and you. Take their horses. Follow us. As they walked north on the highway, Martin tried to dial back his annoyance and impatience and sound as harmless as he could. He meant the bridgemen and their town no harm. They were trying to pass by and didn't want anything to do with their town. He explained the truth of their mission. The leader told him to shut up. The other bridgemen acted as if they were deaf. Man, I really don't have time for this, Martin muttered to Robert. We need to be camped south of Keene by dark. Hopefully this chairwoman will be more reasonable than her goons. Hopefully we'll have only lost an hour or two. I don't know, said Robert, while he shook his head. Water with your purifier tablets might smell like bleach, not anything alcoholic. Something's weird here. They walked through a fortified checkpoint at another bridge over a small river. That position guarded access to the town of Jaffrey. The river turned north to flow parallel to the highway. Between the scattered houses and leafless trees, Martin could see that the riverbank was fortified with ramshackle barricades of scrap wood, old refrigerators, and car doors. Men with rifles crouched in a few of the hardened firing positions. Across the river, the east bank had similar ad hoc barricades. Houses near the river on both sides were burned out or in various stages of disassembly. Oh, what kind of mess have we stumbled into? Martin wondered. The bridgemen led them up a side road between older homes set close to the road. 
Faces peered out of the windows, but quickly disappeared when Martin turned to look at them. Are these people afraid of the bridge men or us? The leader stopped the procession in front of a red brick building with three sets of white double doors at the top of a broad flight of concrete steps. At first, Martin thought it might be a church, but there was no steeple. Take the horses back around to the back, the leader commanded. Tie them to the swings or something. Oh, and Cooper, stay with the horses and go through their stuff. The rest of you, meet me back out front. We're still at Condition Orange. With that, the three horses were led along the side of the brick building and out of sight. Martin and his friends were marched around the other side. A long two-story wing with tall windows stretched out parallel to the road. It wasn't a church. It was a school. Most of the bridgemen stayed outside in the patchy front yard. The leader and two others led Martin's group through a secondary entrance. Pale yellow hallway walls and a semi-glossy linoleum floor reflected what little daylight filtered through the small windows in the classroom doors. Along the walls sat stacks of boxes, desks, and other unneeded furniture. A guard stood beside a door near the end of the hall. The air had a damp, musty smell, with acrid undertones of old urine. One of the bridgemen pushed Martin through the guarded door. Martin struggled to keep on his feet, despite the awkwardness of having his hands tied behind his back. Trevor stumbled against the built-in reception counter, but regained his footing. The office was a little brighter than the hallway, owing to the two glass office doors off the waiting area. The offices had tall windows. Unneeded office desks had been pushed into one corner to free up floor space. Boxes and chairs were stacked on top. A tall H, made of black pipe and fittings, stood behind the reception desk. It was seven or eight feet wide. The vertical pipes spanned between the floor and the ceiling. One of the bridgemen pushed Martin's back up against the crossbar of the H and zip-tied his wrists to the pipe. Robert was zipped beside him. They fastened Trevor on the other end. Another bridgeman entered with his arms full of Martin's group's guns and knives. He laid them on one of the office desks, arranging them like a gun show display. Martin noticed that the magazines were missing and the bolts were locked open. Their knives were laid in a line. Look, we're not smugglers, said Martin. His previous pleas had fallen on deaf ears, perhaps literally, but he had to keep trying. They were wasting precious daylight hours with what was a simple misunderstanding. Save it, smuggler boy, jeered the leader. The chairwoman will deal with you. The man nodded his head toward the door. All the bridgemen filed out. The school's reception area had been converted to a temporary prisoner holding, but the walls were like a time capsule of its former life. Posters made of construction paper and glitter announced a harvest festival. A big wall calendar with a photograph of pumpkins was still set on October, the month the power grid died. Signs listed rules of proper behavior and criteria for excused absences. Martin tested his bindings. They were tight and secure. He looked at the pipe flanges that were bolted to the floor. They looked solid. The tops of the vertical pipes disappeared into dark square voids in a drop ceiling. Oh, maybe the top isn't attached as well, Martin said. He pointed up with his eyes. 
Let's try and pull at the same time and see if we can break the top free. Ready? On three. One, two, three. The three men pushed and pulled on the crossbar. They rocked forward and back, pulling with their tied wrists. Back and forth, back and forth, they tried to build up momentum. It's no use, said a disembodied voice. All three men stopped and looked to their right. Unnoticed before was a darkened open doorway with an improvised chain-link door bolted shut across it. The faces of two men could barely be seen behind the chain-link. We tried that when there were five of us tied to the bar, said one of the men in the dark. Yeah, it wouldn't budge. Who are you? Martin asked. And what the heck is going on here? Hey, you're not from around here, said the man. I don't recognize you. Well, you're not FC. Yeah, they tied you up, so you can't be PFJ either. The mystery in the acronyms taxed Martin's already thin patience. PFJ? What are you talking about? No, we're not from around here. We're from Cheshire, and... Oh, really? Interrupted another man in the dark cell. Well, yes, really. We were on our way to buy some medicine from a man west of Keene. My wife is sick and we need special medicine. On our way, we got too close to this bizarro town, apparently. Yeah, things are tough here in Jeffrey, said the man. When the power went out last fall, people banded together at first to help each other out. But... The first man interrupted to continue the tale. As the weeks went on, people were divided on what to do. Half wanted to beg for federal aid. The other half refused to accept the terms the feds demanded. Yeah, we took our cue from you Cheshire folks. Yeah, Martin nodded. Yeah, we didn't like the terms either, so we refused the aid too. Yeah, long story short, said the first man, the town stayed split and constantly argued whether we were to accept or not. Arguing turned into fighting. Over the winter, yeah, people kind of ethnically cleansed themselves to the east and west sides with the Freedom Coalition on the east side of town and People for Justice on the west side. And we're on the west side, said Robert. Uh, why are you two locked up? Uh, we're FC, said the second man. We were on patrol on the north side when we got jumped. Most prisoners are held upstairs in converted classrooms. We're down here in holding because of some prisoner swap deal in the works. Yeah, chimed in the first man. But that could all fall through. Our council was talking about making a fortified roadblock up on Nutting Road. If they go for that, eh, the PFJ has been sending teams out on the north side, breaking into people's homes, eh, stealing food and stuff, added the first man. Eh, the PFJ thinks Nutting Road Bridge is on their side of the line, eh, so they won't stand for one of our forts up there. It's not their side, objected the second man. It's on our side. Well, whatever, Martin exclaimed. We don't have time to get sucked into any of this. We gotta get out of here and back on our way to Keene. Well, you're not going anywhere now, said the first man. It won't go well for you when Acker gets here either. Yeah, that woman is some sort of Fidel Castro she-demon thing. Oh, she was cranky enough as a school board chairwoman before all this, added the second man. Once she took charge of the west side, set up the PFJ, she's gone ruthless. Martin yanked at his ropes. I don't have time for craziness. We need to get out of here. While he struggled at his ropes, Martin noticed that he could see the rear schoolyard through the corner office door. 
Hey, uh, I can see our horses, he said. They're tied up to some playground equipment. Are their saddles still on them? said Robert. Uh, yes, Martin leaned farther right for a better look. Looks like our stuff is laid out on the ground. Yeah, some guy's going through our packs like he's taking inventory or something. Uh, they probably don't know how to take saddles off. Well, that's good. Well, what difference did that make? asked Trevor. We're in here, stuck to this pipe. Well then, said Martin, let's see what we can do about that. He peered around the room in quick glances. The only thing that wasn't obviously out of reach was the built-in reception desk. He leaned forward and backward to look around Robert and Trevor. Everything on the counter seemed useless. File folders, empty cardboard boxes, plastic in-and-out bins, debris from a previous world. His eyes stopped on a clipboard. It had a chrome metal clip. Trevor, do you think you could reach that clipboard on the desk? Well, why do you want that? Because I've had some like that before. They had rough edges on the back side of the metal clips. Cheap Chinese products, they don't always clean up their metal stampings. If it's rough, maybe we can use that edge like a saw on these zip ties. Oh, hey, I like that idea. Uh, hold on, let me see. Trevor slid his bindings down to the end near the desk. He tried kicking a leg up onto the desktop. The move was awkward and futile. Now hold on, I got a better idea. Trevor turned his wrists in his bindings such that he could grab the crossbar in his hands. He hooked one shoulder against the vertical pipe. With his firmer stance, he could use both feet like chopsticks. He pulled the clipboard to the edge of the desk with one heel. Pinched between his boots, he lifted his prize. Okay, here it come, Trevor said. He tilted back and bent his knees, bringing the brown board near the horizontal pipe. Robert's fingers reached upward, finally grabbing a corner. Got it! He quickly got the board turned around. Well, feel the edges of the clip, said Martin. Are they rough? Uh, not really, Robert said. Here, you tell me. Robert tilted the board toward Martin. His reaching fingers resembled two spindly blossoms. His smile vanished. No great. Fine time for the Chinese to improve their quality. Martin let the clipboard slide down his leg to the floor. He nudged it over to the wall. Well, what about that tape dispenser? Martin pointed with his head. It looks like it has a metal tear strip. Oh, like a little saw blade, said Trevor. Oh, let me try. He refreshed his grip and kicked his legs up onto the desk. With his heel, he pulled the blotter toward himself. The empty tape dispenser slid with it. He slowly transferred it to Robert's waiting fingers. Great, said Martin. Now, try it on my zip tie. He slid his bindings close to Robert's, but leaned away to give him room to work. Robert rubbed the serrated edge back and forth across the black nylon band. Oh, this is going to take forever, he said. It's only scored one side and an edge. Well, maybe that's enough, said Martin. He twisted in his bindings until the pain was too much. He rotated in the opposite direction. Snap! The zip tie split. Martin fell to his knees with the sudden release. Hey, 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 said one of the prisoners. Someone's coming! The sound of many footsteps echoed from the hallway. Martin hesitated for a moment. Should he grab one of the knives on the table? Could he get himself or one of the others free before whoever was in the hallway came into the room? If he did, then what? He decided that he had to wait for a better opportunity. He backed up to the black pipe 
and held on with his still-tied hands. The door swung open quickly and hit the wall. Four men entered. They wore mismatched patterns of camo clothing. All four wore blue armbands on their left arms. In their right hands, they carried differing rifles, an AK, a bolt-action rifle with wooden stock and a very large scope, a pump 12-gauge, and a Ruger 1022. They took up positions in a loose line facing Martin and his friends. After the four men, a late middle-aged woman strode in with heavy bootsteps. A few points of sandy gray hair hung from beneath her dark blue cap. She was stocky, with broad shoulders and a neck equal in width to her head. Only a little football-shaped bump of a chin denoted the end of her face and the beginning of her neck. With an angry scowl, she looked over each one of the new prisoners. The bald-headed leader of the bridgeman walked in behind her. Okay, Josephs, said the woman. What's such a big deal with these prisoners? I have a lot to tend to now. Oh, Madam Chair, these are the smugglers I told you about. We're not smugglers, said Martin. We're... Shut up, snapped the woman. I'll tell you when to duck. The bald man resumed. Oh, well, we caught them trying to cross the second south bridge. They meant trouble for our town. They had hooch in their canteens and silver coins from their previous sales. They were heavily armed with these. He waved a dramatic sweep of his arms over the weapons laid out on the desk. Weapons of war, as you can see. Martin glanced at the AK held by the man in front of him. Well, if ours are weapons of war, what are those? They're not F.C., though. The bald man rubbed his chin as he looked at Robert and Trevor. They must be hired thugs sent by the F.C. to poison our people, rape and kill. Hmm. The woman eyed Robert and Trevor through narrow slits. None of that's true, said Martin. The woman shot a death glare at him. He knew it was a signal to be silent, but he continued. We were just passing by, on our way to Keene, to buy some medicine. My wife is sick, you see. We were on our way from Cheshire and... What? The woman erupted. Her eyes were so wide, the white showed all around her pupils. Well, we're from Cheshire and... Martin couldn't finish his sentence. The woman slapped him hard across his cheek. Martin had to hold on to the black pipe to keep from falling over. Cheshire? Then you're worse than smugglers ranted the woman. You are the cause of all of this. You are from that criminal town that has forced us into all of this suffering. She began to pace back and forth in front of Martin and the others. Beneath her scowling eyebrows, her eyes were far away and thought, You're some of those rebels. Your stupidity convinced the governor to refuse federal aid. We could have had food and medicines, but no. Because of you, thirty-four of my people have died from starvation this winter. Half of this town was corrupted by your juvenile petty. I, I didn't. Uh, we... Martin's sentence was halted by a quick punch in his stomach by the guard with the AK. Martin doubled over, but held tightly to the pipe. As much as his instinct was to defend himself, it would be short-lived, with a room full of armed men. The woman stopped pacing and jabbed her finger like a drill sergeant, close to Martin's red face. Because of you, 
My people couldn't get the medicine they needed. Twenty-two have died of fevers or infection. I don't care if your wife is sick. I hope she dies. In fact, that would be justice. Martin saw the man with the AK wind up for the next punch, so he was able to curl just enough to lessen the impact. The look in the woman's eyes was pure hate. The man doing the beating, however, showed a professional detachment. Beating was simply a job for him. Josephs, don't put these three in the cells with the others, said the woman. We need to deal with them specially, but I don't have time right now. The F.C. are up to something. After we've crushed whatever attack they have planned, we can celebrate our glorious victory by holding a public trial and beating for these killers. They need to pay their debt to society in the public square. Maybe we'll let every citizen who lost a loved one have a turn at beating them. The woman looked away and chuckled to herself at the mental images. If they live, we'll make them work in the fields to grow food for the rest of us. Another man rushed into the room. Oh, Madam Chair, uh, F.C. men are approaching uh, the North Bridge right now. How many? she snapped. The man with the A.K. stepped back in line. Martin gasped for breath, happy at his temporary reprieve. Uh, lookouts count at least uh, fifty, said the new man. Ha! Perfect! She clapped her hands together. That's probably half of their best men. This is our chance to strike a blow that these sorry criminals won't be able to recover from, she said. Gather every available trooper, and that includes the backup. I want us to outnumber them three to one. Have everyone meet at the library square. Quickly, you idiot, quickly. She flailed him away impatiently. The man ran out of the room. She turned her scowl back on Martin. I'll deal with you when I get back. You have to pay for over fifty innocent lives. She rushed out of the room, followed by the other men. The clomping of running boots on linoleum grew fainter. Muffled shouts arose from the front yard. This chapter featured a town divided, split between freedom, with its attendant risks, and provision, with its attendant subservience. Cheshire had a hint of that dichotomy in the character of Candace in books two and three. But Candace, for all her eagerness to accept bondage for food, didn't have much of a following. What would it be like if half of Cheshire were Candace's? That's what I cooked up for the town of Jaffrey. Strong divisions tend to lead to polarization and, if both parties are roughly equal in strength, violence. One of my readers, Mike, in an undisclosed location, told me that I had the halves of Jaffrey backward. The western half would have been the independent half, and the eastern half would have accepted the federal boot on their necks if it meant a slice of bread. I'd never lived in Jaffrey, so I made a 50-50 guess. It would have been cool if I had guessed correctly, yeah, but I didn't. Thanks for the insider info, though, Mike. I'd like to give a shout-out to John, who bought me some more coffees this week. Thanks, John. And a huge coffee buy by Chris, who also joined the Siege Club. Great to have you as a monthly member, Chris. As a member, Chris now has access to all the draft chapters posted thus far in Book 6. That, and the other videos and posts from around the homestead. Uh, the bobcats aren't gone, by the way.
If you'd like to join Chris and the others in the Siege Club, and you know you do, you can click on the membership word on the right side of my Buy Me a Coffee page. Or if you have troubles with the Buy Me a Coffee site, you can become a patron on Patreon. Both sets of cool kids get access to the same insider content. Well, not to sound like those narrators at the end of the old movie serials, but come back next week to find out what happens next.